Please turn in your Bibles. We're actually going to read two passages, but the first one is your is our uh, sermon text from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And then following that, we're going to actually turn to 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. And you'll and I want as we read the second passage, I want you to see how closely Peter and Paul's instructions to the church and to men and women, how closely they parallel each other. First Timothy two, eight through fifteen. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable attire, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly, with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And now let's turn a little further back in the New Testament to 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. <clears throat> Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Here we end the reading of God's Word. We notice that there is parallelism between these two passages. Actually, Paul begins by saying men should pray, all men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Peter kind of ends the passage with his, likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. And he, and he goes on, and he says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's prayer. They almost are quoting from each other when they talk about how a woman should adorn herself, not with uh, hair braided and expensive jewelry and lavish clothing, but with a, a spirit. It's, it's the inner person that actually provides the beauty for the woman. And also that uh, there are, but I got to tell you, 
when I read these passages, I said, oh, how am I going to preach this? And let me tell you, there's a problem here. Is there a church that you know of that actually follows what Paul says here? Is there a wife who calls her husband Lord? Is there a man who does not at some time become angry and quarrelsome with his wife? And I think that's actually the context when Paul talks about men lifting holy hands in prayer without anger and without being quarrelsome. And then he immediately shifts to women. It's, it's in that context of the male-female relationship, the husband-wife relationship, uh, the, that, that Paul says that. We need to hear Paul, and for the good of our families, our churches, and our land, begin to recapture a more biblical family structure, because our culture is certainly antithetical to what Paul writes here. And unfortunately, I believe we have been way too much influenced by our culture, even in our churches. Even more for the honor of God who ordained marriage and who established the patterns of marriage and the order in marriage, and for the honor of Christ, who is both the head of the man, according to Paul, and the head of the church. We really need to confront these passages and bring ourselves in line with them. Let me ask you a few more questions. Paul talks about godliness and holiness in these passages and faith and so forth. Do you really want to be godly? What does that mean? Well, it's a contracted form. That word godly is a contracted form of the word godlike. That is, to be like God in moral purity, to be like God in uprightness, justice, holiness. And for the purposes of this series that we're going to give on this, on this passage, we want to actually say godliness and holiness in this context are pretty much the same thing. Paul uses those terms kind of interchangeably in the passage. Do you really want to be godly, to pursue holiness? If this, is this an important thing for you? Is it something you just nod your head on Sunday morning when the pastor's talking about holiness? You know, Peter talked a lot about holiness when he was here, didn't he? Why do you think he did that? Because he knew it is important for us to pursue holiness. Look at the emphasis on holiness and godliness. Again, we're understanding them in this context to be pretty much the same thing. But look at both Peter and Paul emphasizing that. The holiness and godliness that Paul writes about, and Peter also, seems to be focused on the role of men and women together and in the church, in their families relationship and then their church relationship, which may carry over also into the world. Both of these men have that theme. I'm going to tell you how we're going to approach this passage, because if we just jump into the passage 
we're going to be missing a lot of background material that's important for us to have in our minds and hearts as we try to understand, as we wrestle with Paul's instruction, understanding that I, I truly believe we fall far short of the instruction that Paul gives us and Peter gives us in these two passages. Today, we're actually going to look at what was God's intention. So we're going to go back to Genesis. We're going to look at God's intention in the formulation, the formation of the family unit, the husband and the wife. And there's a, there's a, a creational pattern there that God intended to follow through in the generations, not just for Adam and Eve, but for men and women, for husbands and wives. That pattern also, uh, well, that pattern also comes in to a certain extent in the church as well. There is a, a pattern that God established, and this is before the fall. This is at the time of creation with Adam and Eve. And we can learn much about how we are to relate to each other by studying that pattern. It's creational. It's prior to sin. It's prior to redemption. It is one of the things we sometimes call a creation ordinance. Creation ordinances are interesting things because they kind of are even underneath the commandments. They are, in a sense, a revelation of God's moral law prior to the time of the Ten Commandments, in many ways undergirding those commandments. There's a, a deeper wisdom in the creation ordinances. They tell us, they teach us how man is to be happy with his creator, man the creature, how he is to live not only in the in the light of the Creator's revealed will, but how he is to live a blessed life and experience the blessing of God. Creation ordinances show us that. Another creation ordinance, by the way, is the Sabbath ordinance. It comes at the time of creation. God establishes it. Establishes it. The family unit, the husband-wife marriage, are also creation ordinances. Well, I said let's, we're, today we're going to look at what was God's intention in the creation. Next week, we're going to look at what happened when that old serpent showed up. Actually, things are going fine, and that snake shows up in the garden. What happened there? Paul refers to, in, in his passage, he gives the reasons for his instructions rooted in both creation, the order of creation, and in something that happened during the fall. So we're going to look at creation. We're going to look at what happened during the fall. And then on a third Sunday, the third week, we're going to look at what about the restoration process? How is marriage? How is the, how is the, the, ma the male-female relationship undergoing a restoration during the time of redemption, during the, through the work of Christ, and during the time of redemption. So we're going to take three Sundays and look at those three areas. God's intention in creation, what happened as a result of the fall and, the, and man's sin, and 
how does Christ's redemptive work now bring about a restoration and a renewal in marriage? Paul assumes in this passage that the patterns set in God's institution of marriage are actually going to carry forward into the church, into the church. Strong biblical families make strong churches. Weak, dysfunctional families make weak, dysfunctional churches. Ask a pastor how much time he has to spend during the week counseling husbands and wives that are having difficulties. It's considerable, and it is one of the chief sources of stress for the pastor as well as for the husband and wife in dealing with these matters. What was God's intention? Let's turn back in our Bibles. Get those Bibles out. We're going to warm them up today. Get those Bibles out. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. We've gone through the the first chapter of Genesis gives us the, the six days of creation, each day having its own uh, way in which God either brought order uh, to, the, to, the, to the creation. Notice in the beginning of Genesis 1, it describes the, the heavens and the earth, the oceans and so forth, as being empty or being void and without form. They are empty and they are disorganized. This is what we mean by the word chaos, by the way. That's what chaos literally means. It's, it's, it's without form. It's disorganized. The six days of creation are the story of how God brings order to his creation and fills it. The creation is, is without organization, and it is empty. It has nothing alive in it. Six days of creation, God brings order to the creation, and he fills it with living things. On the seventh, he rested. Then chapter two comes along. There's, a, there's a, an interesting word. You notice in, in, uh, up toward the beginning of chapter 2, not right at the beginning, but I think it's verse 3, there's this word generations. These are the generations. You'll find that repeated several times in the book of Genesis. In fact, that really is the, the, uh, that word, these are the generations, uh, actually provides the, the internal structure for the book of Genesis. But there's a significance for that, because when Moses uses that term, these are the generations, what he's, what he's going to do, he's telling you what the next part of the book of Genesis is going to be about. He's going to take one or two items from the previous section and develop their history and develop their significance in the next section. He's going to take a few items from the previous section and develop them more fully in the next section of the book of Genesis. So when he talks about these are the generations of the heavens and the earthies, I'm going to go back now and take some items from the previous chapter and develop them more in chapters 2 and, and so forth. One of the things that he does, Genesis 1 tells us that God made man, male and female, in his image. Well, Genesis 2 goes back and tells us a story behind that statement. How did God? It, it didn't happen right in those first six days. It actually happened after those six days that God created the woman. 
but she was not an afterthought. It wasn't like God suddenly looked at his creation and said, oh no, I forgot something. No. Actually, he delays it so that we could appreciate the importance, so it can stand out separate from the rest of the creation story, so that we can look at this and say God was wise and loving and good in his structure, in his creation of both male and female and the and the way he intended them to relate to each other. So now we come to Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a fit helper fit for him. They all had their male-female mates. They all had that, that pairing. But for Adam, there is no one who is the suitable helper for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The passage says, God said, it is not good. Now again, going back to Genesis 1, how many times in Genesis 1 do we see the words, God looked at what he had made, and it was good, it was good, it was good. We get to the end of the six days, God saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. And then we get to Genesis 2, it's not good. Something is not yet complete. When God says it is good, it means what he has done perfectly accomplishes his decree, perfectly fits his intention. When he sees this, that man is still alone, he says it's not good. It's not complete. It, it's not ready to fulfill my intention for creation. Man cannot, Adam cannot by himself, do what God has told him to do. Genesis 1.28 said this, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the rest of the creation. God, uh, God is setting Adam up as, as, as a, a, an, a, a ruler over creation under God. Sometimes the term is used, a vice-regent a vice-regent. The problem is, Adam can't do this alone. He cannot be fruitful and multiply on his own. He actually cannot exercise dominion over creation. 
not the way God intends it, on his own. He needs that suitable helper that every other animal, every other part of the creation has that suitable helper, but nothing was found for Adam. He cannot fulfill his creation mandate unless he has this helper with him. So what does God do? God causes Adam to fall asleep, take a nap. And while Adam is asleep, God takes a rib. And from the rib, he forms the woman. Notice Adam's body was created from the immediately from the dust of the earth. Eve's body is formed immediately through Adam, but still participating in the dust of the earth foundation, but through Adam, and that's why she's called woman. Adam, in his headship over the creation, is naming. That's a, that's a, there's something about being the head of the creation and naming it, describing its function, describing its origin, describing its place in, in creation. That was the significance of naming. That's part of Adam's dominion over the creation. He shows that he is actually exercising a dominion over the woman when he gives her her name and describes where she came from. She is woman because she came out of man. From the rib. Matthew Henry, I'm sure you've heard of this, has a beautiful comment on this section. Adam did not create Eve from Adam's head so that she would rule over him. Nor did he take Eve from his foot so that he would trample on her. But he made her from his rib so that he would, she would be right next to him and he would cherish her as one close to his heart. I know we're only a little past Valentine's Day, but is also the origin of romantic love. God blessed these two with an affinity for each other, a need to be with the one who is my helper, a need to be with the one who, in, who under God is my head. It's a beautiful story. Think of it. The woman, the woman becomes the completer. Sometimes guys say to their wife or girlfriend, you complete me. Well, that's more than just a sweet thing. She actually does become the, the one who completes Adam and enables. She is the enabler the one who enables Adam to actually accomplish God's will, the mandate that God gave him in Genesis 1.28. She is the completer and the enabler. To Adam directly is given the mandate to rule over creation, to exercise dominion. To Eve, to the woman Indirectly, she shares in that, but through her creational head, Adam. That passage also closes with this comment, as Adam himself makes a comment on this. 
Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Well, actually, the comment comes in a way through, through the inspired words of Moses, who actually wraps up this section, uh, this, this passage, with this comment on a purpose. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. This is the institution of marriage, and it's going to carry forth from generation for generation. From this time forward, men will leave their fathers and mothers and take to themselves a wife, and they will uh, begin a new family together. He will hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. United in love, united in purpose, united in service to their creator, united as one flesh. Shall we even begin to imagine what that is? One flesh. You know, I think in even the godliest families, we'd still say there are differences of opinion and stress points and and maybe competing agendas and 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 so forth. And yet we all know that this is a goal. This is the intention and these these intentions in the creational context still serve as the pattern that we strive for. I want to introduce to you a concept that most of us don't really spend a lot of time thinking about. It's a, it's a principle of what I call the archetypal pattern. There's an academic term for you, isn't it? But let me explain. When God did this with Adam and Eve, he intended this to be the pattern throughout all human history. They are the the model, if you will, the archetype. This archetypal pattern is intended to go through the rest of history from generation to generation. We're going to see this come back again when we talk about the fall, because what happened to Adam and Eve in the fall also has a pattern that goes on from generation to generation to generation. When Paul talks about both creation and the fall as underlying his instructions to the church, he's intending both men and women to understand that their lives still, thousands of years after the fall, their lives are still in many ways, shaped and formed by the effects of the fall, and particularly the judgments that God pronounced on both the man and the woman as a result of the fall. We can't escape it. It's part of our human heritage. Post-fall, after the fall, it's part of the heritage that we have. Perhaps it's not the good heritage, but it is with us still. And again, it was God's intention to establish these archetypal patterns in human society. Adam now has the helper that is suitable for him. 
Adam now has one in which they will be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The story of that takes up the next several chapters of of the book of Genesis. Adam has the one who will be by his side helping him, helping him as he exercises his God-ordained dominion over the creation, naming, learning. Adam's going through a learning curve here too. What What do I do with these things, God? And he's learning. God is instructing him and showing him during this time. Eve is right at his side, learning and helping as well. Together they will have children. Together they will raise up and they will live for centuries together. Centuries, 900 years. Adam lived over 900 years. Things are going well. Adam is exercising his dominion over the creation, and as such, he is serving his creator. And that's really what God intended. God intended to make this man in his own image to be a special kind of servant in ruling over the physical creation that he would make. Eve at his side, helping as the one suitable for him. And then the snake shows up. And what happened? We're going to explore this more fully next week. I want you to go home and I want you to ponder the beautiful, wise, righteous, good intention of God in this creation story. This is what he intended marriage to be. This is what he intended in his creation. There are certain psalms, of course, written after the fall, written actually during a time when marriage is being rebuilt and, and, and redeemed from the effects of the fall. There are certain psalms that rejoice in the in the in a godly family life that man is blessed who has a family where as they sit down together his wife is a fruitful vine and his children gather around the table and they are like arrows arrows have purpose arrows are given direction by the the archer Arrows are sent to a target, and, and the psalmist says your, your children, your sons, are like these arrows. Blessed is the man who has a quiver full of them. You send them out from your family. They will seek their own wives and start their own families, but they have purpose. They will contend with the enemy. They will carry on the godly warfare against evil, against wickedness. Young children in this church, you see that as your calling, to carry on the calling of God in your life from one generation to another? We should praise God. We should take time to meditate on God's intention. Let me just close with something else. 
there's a lot of a lot of debate today on the even in reformed churches now pressure to ignore Paul's instruction in in 1 Timothy 2. Well, Paul was just reverting back to his pharisaical culture which enslaved women, which which didn't appreciate women and the and the contribution they make. Jesus, they say, came to liberate women, but Paul the Pharisee is actually re-enslaving women. That's some of the rhetoric that that is common out there, even in the church, and even, surprisingly, coming in a little bit in Reformed churches. All these debates about men and women in the church, they, they don't really... They don't really affect us where we live, so let's talk about what's really important. Well, apparently for Paul, this was pretty important. Apparently something rooted in creation, disturbed and ruined by the fall, but being restored in Christ, it was pretty important. To maintain a proper order in the church was important. So let me say this, there is a real need, and I hope in our minds we will start to build this, this concept. It's a, it's a word that our culture rejects today. It's a, it's a word that our culture really tells us is, is, is toxic, just like toxic masculinity, right? Masculinity is toxic. No, but what we need to do, and, and this is one of the reasons why I'm laying this foundation back in, in Genesis with God's intention— we need to rebuild in our minds, in our families, in our churches, a concept of a godly, biblical masculinity and femininity. And since it is God's intention that man be the head, a godly and biblical concept of headship and the relationship— now, as soon as people talk about headship, a couple of things happen. Some react negatively to it. Oh, again, that's, that's oppressive and so forth. Now, i got to tell you, there are some guys who get a hold of this concept of headship and become little tyrants. And that, too, is the problem. That is not godly headship. It is not biblical headship. I remember a story uh, told to me by a, a daughter of a very prominent, at the time, a very prominent uh, speaker in Reformed churches. He was for even a while an Orthodox Presbyterian minister, though he left the OPC. But his daughter said he would be, he would be out on his preaching and teaching tours, his, his circuit of, of speaking tours, and if he was coming home that night, he left instructions that his family had to stand at the dinner table and could not eat before he got home. And if he was an hour late, they were standing there by the dinner table waiting for him because he was the head of the family. And until he came and sat down and prayed and passed out the food, they had to wait. I, I'm sorry. I don't think that was God's intention. That, to me, gets very close to a tyranny and an unbiblical view of headship. Notice what Peter says. Live with Live with your wife with understanding. There's, there's a sense of mercy. There's a sense of, of, of love and of compassion because we're also bringing into it the whole Christian ethic of loving God and loving our neighbor. Brothers, who is your closest neighbor? Who is the closest neighbor you have? 
It's your wife. It's your wife. Well, today the ideal, the purpose, the creational intention. Next week, we'll talk about what happened after that snake showed up. But ponder these things. Meditate on them. Rejoice and marvel at the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the beautiful story in the creation account of the the first marriage, the first family, your intention. And you deliberately separated that story out for us so that we could appreciate its beauty, the power of its instruction to us. We pray, Father, that you would bless our hearts as we consider these things in the days to come. And next week, Lord, even as we have been lifted up by the beauty of your wisdom and the glory of your goodness, next week, Lord, help us to understand the destruction of sin and how through temptation and sin, all that you intended was marred. It was destroyed. And yet, you in your goodness restore us through Christ. And in Christ, again, we have redemption, not only for eternity, but redemption of our lives even now and a a rebuilding of our lives toward that goal, toward that purpose that you intended. Father, we pray for your blessing as we leave, prepare to leave this church today, that you would walk with us and be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.